The vision of the holy ones is not fraught with distraction, for they will not strive nor cry, nor shall anyone hear their voice. But it comes so quietly and gently that immediately joy, gladness, and courage arise in the soul. These are words that Athanasius records Anthony preaching to a gathering of monks. They come from the text of the life of St. Anthony, written by Athanasius. This is a history of Christian theology. I'm your host, Chad Kim. With me are my co-hosts, Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. Today, we take some time away from the Trinitarian debates and discuss the first life of a monk written by Athanasius about Anthony of the Desert. Anthony is known as the father of monasticism. As we emphasize in the episode, Anthony's life as a monk was very different from the medieval monks that many people associate with monasticism. He spent a great deal of time alone in the Egyptian desert, praying the Psalms and weaving baskets. His story is worth reading as an introduction to the Eastern monastic tradition. Later this week, I hope to upload a 25-minute episode where we respond to a listener's questions about the story of the Nicene Council. If you have a question for us, please comment on our Facebook page. We would love to have more interaction with our listeners. We won't always spend 25 minutes on the questions, but we will devote some time to responding to them on the air. So thank you, Aaron Burke. If you would also please rate us and review us on iTunes, that will improve our listenership as well. Please enjoy this week's episode. Um, I guess in order to set the stage a little bit, uh, uh, so Athanasius uh, wrote uh, On the Incarnation, which we're going to read next week. Um, He is uh, one of the main fighters for orthodoxy. He kind of has an interesting story in his own life um, about how he was exiled for his Trinitarian beliefs after um, this takes place in the mid-fourth century. Uh, But he writes this life of Antony, who's known as the first monk. And we think that probably around 270, he goes out uh, into the desert. So this is most people think it's before um, the actual Edict of Toleration, which we talked about. And Anthony goes in the desert. We, we can talk about what his reasons are for going into the desert, but he goes and becomes the first uh, monk. And so a lot of times Christian historians will talk about the transition from martyrdom to monasticism. So as Christianity becomes legal, um, there is this movement towards an intense uh, monasticism, uh, especially in the desert, and then these little communities that are built up um, around people like uh, Antony. And Antony is the great exemplar uh, for monks for basically the rest of uh, Christian history. Um, he will be the model for for the ideal uh, monk. And so I, I, I think I'm excited about talking about this because it – it takes a little bit away from the ac- academic theology. One point that he actually makes in here, while he does this, we, we were just talking about his disputes with the Arians. Um, he actually says he's not a man of letters. He probably spoke Coptic. Um, he has to have a translator when he ta- speaks in Greek uh, with these philosophers. Um, but he is a deci- decidedly against um, any kind of reading. And so there's a certain simplicity uh, to this person's life. So, um, against any kind of what? Um, he, he, uh, he's against like academic learning. Um, and he, there's a lot, uh, they, he actually, um, Anthony or Athanasius describes him as sort of a, a, a fool. Um, you almost hear echoes of, uh, Dostoevsky's <coughs> fool. Um, but there's a certain simplicity to him. He, he, he rejects the need for, 
um, logic and arguments in order to prove the existence of God. And he says that God gives faith, not arguments, is, is one of his lines when he debates with the philosophers. Um, so he's sort of against human wisdom, against book learning. He apparently never learned to read and write. So I guess um, that's, you know, that's something of his, his background. And I mean, I, like I said, I can't overstate his importance um, in terms of this just being the, the icon, the exemplar of um, monasticism and early Christianity. Um, any good study of monasticism begins with uh, Antony. So, um, you know, any, any thought, okay, let's, let's start from the beginning. So what, you know, what did you guys think about his decision to go into the desert, why he goes into the desert, what, you know, and how, how does that, you know, uh, I mean, how did you guys, uh, you know, imagine the beginnings of monasticism before uh, looking into this work? Well, and, you know, before, I guess, actually partly an answer to your question and partly a little bit of a, a little bit more background, you know, I, <clears throat> I did read kind of as we were preparing for this, that there it's contested whether or not he was the first monk. Is that right? I mean, that a lot of people think that there, that there are older monastics, but that for whatever reason, he has kind of been singled out as the father of them all, so to speak. Um, yeah. Yeah. So there's evidence within the text that he actually learns from people. So yeah. So presumably there were other people in the desert because he, he actually talks about gathering up sort of virtue virtues from other people who are already out there. So yeah, this is true um, that even within the story, there's a little bit of um, evidence that, that somebody else is out there. Yeah. So I think one thing for, you know, I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with what a monk is, but I think it's helpful to kind of really think about the motivations in general, uh, which obviously are the same motivations that fuel uh, St. Anthony, but just the motivations in general for monasticism, which all, you know, different, there are different kinds of monasticism, different uh, monks who basically refrain from certain things or, you know, uh, I should say who refrain from certain behaviors and those differ from monastic community to monastic community. But the big thing is, is that monks all tend to withdraw from society. They, they withdraw from uh, maybe not society absolutely, like there are certainly communities that pop up from time to time where monks live in a kind of small monastic society, but they withdraw from society at large, society in general. And so that's, you know, what St. Anthony is doing, why he does it, uh, or why monks do this. I, it, you know, I don't know, there are the reasons that are given, and then there are uh, potentially more psychological, you know, reasons behind it. Um, I, I think that, I think it seems to me that ultimately there's this sense of uh, kind of a need to be pure and holy and society provides temptations, which I, I think there's this fundamental assumption that, that living a comfortable life and um, uh, experiencing the, the, uh, the leisure and, and joys of wealth are fundamentally corrupting. Maybe they're not evil, but they corrupt us. And so the idea is if we can withdraw from those, then we can increase in holiness or something like that. Seems to be. Well, and he was, as we know from the text, he was like from comfort. He kind of came from the rich family and he was trying to like 
throw off him old, his old self. And when he read about the rich young man who Jesus told to sell everything, that seemed to be like the beginning. I mean, that was, that started it all off. He sells it all. And then he's, you know, he's kind of stoked on the fact that, well, maybe he's not so, I don't know. It doesn't really actually say his attitude, but he seems to like very uh, zealously though, start to pursue uh, the other parts of the aesthetic life, which that's the part I don't understand though, is it, they never end up really giving scriptural reasons for why he's an ascetic. Like I know that in general, we encourage fasting in the Bible and perhaps he heard something about that, but he does go like full bore, like super hardcore fasting. I think I read it was like he ate, once a day and he got down to once every two days and then once every four days or something. And he's like holed up and essentially like solitary confinement. And it just got, it did get a bit weird. I, w- I would say that, like I-, I thought it got, I would argue pretty unhealthy at one point, but like, well, yeah. So, yeah. So just um, Trevor used the word ascetic. Uh, it comes from the Greek word eschesis, which is to train. Um, and so there is this discipline, this training that these monks undergo. And so, and it's also important to remember when we have an, uh, like, if we think nowadays about what monks, you know, monks wear a certain kind of clothing, monks live in a monastery. Uh, Anthony was living in a cave in a desert by himself. Um, and basically uh, at one point it says he, uh, he worked with his hands. He made baskets. This was a typical thing that monks would do. And then they would sell them if there was anybody nearby. Um, otherwise there's, uh, there's also stories of them making the baskets. Um, and if no one buys them, burning them and continuing to make them, um, because that they they basically believe that uh, people should always work, but he was constant in prayer, knowing that a man ought to pray in secret unceasing the monks go to learn how to pray and pray unceasingly um, and and they also believe that they're they 're fighting, so the training um, that they undergo this ascesis is to prepare for the fight, and the fight is against satan and It is interesting that they sort of flee the comforts of the city because they flee in order to fight um, and in order to fight the 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 demons who at one point he says uh, beat him with lashes and cause earthquakes and any number of things so but yeah, so that his his life is very different from you know even a medieval monk. Um, I mean, this is this is a this is what we'd call um, a hermetic monk. Um, there there are at least three different kinds of monks that Jerome identifies within a couple years of Athanasius writing this, um, and he would be this this solitary monk. So I know that you know we know that this happened in around two seventy five. And so probably three something. Oh, is this? Sorry. Oh no, no. Well, right. I think that there's no. Some, you're right. There's 75. some. Thought, yeah, that he was born then around or started around then. Okay, so uh, in general, do we know whether uh, his life though was um, during the persecutions or was it after? It was during. So, so yeah, presumably it was be- before the Edict of Toleration. Yeah. Okay, so this may have been before, but I have heard in general this historic kind of this is this like reeks of modern uh, historian <laughs> theory type of theory. But 
a lot, I've heard people say things like, well, the reason why this extreme behavior came about uh, was because essentially the martyrdom ceased and the martyrs were like the heroes of the church. And so they needed like a new type of hero in the church. And a lot of people were couldn't go get killed. So they were like, you know, I'm going to go off and just do something really extreme asceticism in order to gain some like essentially hero worship. But that's why actually reading this text kind of made me think that theory seems a little, a little weak because not only did this happen during that time, but when you read about his motivations, he, I mean, to me, it just sounds like the guy's guy's an extreme dude. He's just hardcore. Like, and it has nothing to do with trying to become a hero of the church. In fact, it sounds like whenever he was bothered by people, he left and went further into the desert. <laughs> he was like, oh, these people are ruining my my worship. And you'd go further. So I think it's kind of interesting. But I, I don't know. Maybe that theory still holds for some later later fathers who did it out of vainglory or something. But it uh, like later desert fathers. But I thought that was that was interesting reading this. Well, I do. I do think that that hits on a reality about the trends within the history of the church. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, whether or not Anthony was the first monk or amongst the first monks or, and whether or not he was alive prior to the edict of Milan, which granted toleration to Christianity for those of you who don't remember from previous episodes, whether or not those things are true it is certainly true that monasticism was not big in the history of the church prior to toleration. Prior to the Edict of Milan, yeah. monasticism was not a huge thread. After the Edict of Milan and after the politicizing of the church and after Constantine um, you know, making it viable and legal and even favoring Christianity within the empire, that's when monasticism takes off. And I mean... When you talk about so you know societal um, shifts and societal trends, you know people are always looking for reasons why society goes somewhere. And I mean, it's hard to say how right we ever are on those kinds of things. I mean, at the end of the day, society is doing something because individuals make choices, right? So yeah, it's very possible Anthony just is. I mean, this is just one possible explanation. I'm not saying this is true, but he could be super awkward and not like being around people and just <laughs> does it to get away from them for all we know. But it, I think it's reasonable to hypothesize that, that the church is looking for something new now that martyrdom is over. I don't know that I would put it quite so much as they're looking for heroes per se, as much as perhaps something like this. In the time of the martyrs, the church is persecuted. The church is oppressed. They're fighting for survival. In the time of fav the favoritism of Constantine, no doubt people just start to feel worldly, right? I mean, they start to feel comfortable. And it's just normal for people to feel guilty for their comforts. Like, that's, I think, a human thing. We feel guilt. I feel guilty for living in America, first world, you know, having none of the, the difficulties and constraints that so many people um, throughout our world have to suffer from. You know, I don't I don't have to worry about where my next meal is coming from, you know. There's a certain level of guilt, and I think it's heightened in Christian communities because of the way Jesus speaks of poverty and because of the scriptures that say things like, go sell what things you have, give to the poor, you will have treasures in heaven, then, you know, things of that particular nature. Right. Um, and so... 
you know, you do see this trend, and I think that's a reasonable hypothesis. I would like, before I hand it over to Chad, to add one thing. There's a comment I wanted to make off of something Trevor said a bit ago. Trevor said that it gets a little weird uh, with St. Anthony, and I'm with you, but for our listeners, I'd like to remind everybody, the three of us are distinctly Protestant, and Protestantism rejected monasticism after the... um, uh, after the Reformation. And so Protestants are not going to process monasticism the same way that the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholics will. Where the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholics might see heroism and where they might see, um, where they might deeply respect somebody, Protestants might be a little more for our listeners. We recognize that. We may sometimes, you know, <laughs> speak, you know speak like that, um, but just you know, we're, but that is a fact of a significant difference between the Eastern Orthodox, the Catholics, and the Protestants. Yeah. Well, so one point that I wanted to make sort of about continuity um, between uh, martyrdom and monasticism, uh, one word that comes up, you know, so to be a martyr is, uh, you know, in the, in the later sense of the word is to die for your faith. But um, or die because you're a Christian. Uh, the original sense is a witness or is a testimony. And so one way that, that I have, uh, that I like to think about the monks um, becoming monks after the martyrdom period uh, is, is a different way to witness or to testify to one's faith. Um, and one thing that Anthony says on several occasions, more towards the end of the book, when he's giving encouragement to those who will listen, he says, live as though dying daily. Um, and so there is still this sense of, and even at some points, you know, as Trevor was saying, he's eating once every couple of the days. Um, at other times he talks about how ashamed he is to eat, but he knows that he has to feed his body. Um, but there is still this sense of giving up your body and giving up your life, uh, daily for, uh, your faith. And so there is, even though there, like, it's something of a, it's different for martyrdom versus monasticism. There's also still a bit of a continuity. Um, they're still living for their faith and how they see and understand the witness that they have to make. This martyrdom, uh, you know, to use it a little more literally, is through dying daily. And that's what they do in the desert. Would you guys say that that might be even a little platonically inspired as well? kind of body bad, flesh bad. We hate that we have to eat because the spirit is what's good. I mean, is it oh, still Plato? Rife throughout. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt that, um, that Athanasius is influenced by Plato. There's some discussion about what, how um, Antony would know this much Plato. And he even seems to specifically know Plotinus who has just written his Enneads um, not long before this. Um, so it's, it, there's a lot of speculation as to how he even knows that, but it's very clearly influenced by Plato. Um, you know, the question is sort of how much, how far, that kind of thing. Uh, but, but yeah, clearly platonic. And this is why I've always seen, and you can go do some internet searches for this, if anyone out there is interested, you can find all sorts of comparisons to these guys, to the Buddhist monks, because it was the same. The motivation was similar in the sense that, and Plato is often regarded as like, some people even have theories about how, maybe Plato was affected by East far Eastern ideas and things like this. It's all a bit like speculative stuff, but it's all, it's really interesting because they were two completely separate societies and there was this idea of 
look, there's a spiritual realm. It's good. The way to get to it is to deny this physical dirty realm. And if you read something like how we have, you know, the first Buddha, uh, got his vision under the Bodha tree, that guy was like Siddhartha. That guy was starving himself (laughs) in, in much the same way. And for many of the same reasons. And it's, it's well, yeah. I, okay, so I'll, I, I, I think it's fair to bring that up as context. I will say that he constantly discusses the power of Christ's cross to fight away the demons. Um, I don't know that the reasons are the same. He wants to pray constantly, um, pray without ceasing, um, and he wants to fight the temptation that the devil is bringing upon him. I mean, I'm no scholar in um buddhist monasticism but i've i've read quite a bit on western uh monasticism and there's the the desire to get to nothingness versus the desire to be filled up with christ um you know i think is a fundamentally different um reason and framework although some of the outward practices are similar even in its uh, even even though it's influenced by Platonism, it's still quite a bit different from Buddhist monasticism. I mean, you know, maybe you know, twenty years we'll get to Thomas Merton who tries to sort of bring the two together. But um, I, I still think that fundamentally, at their core, they're 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 seeking something different. Yeah, I had no intention of like conflating the two completely. I was just saying there is like the whole the general idea of flesh is bad spirit is good was is like seems like very common to the two but that that's all i'm saying but yeah that's true there's a big difference though between fulfillment in christ and i would also you know bringing that up i wonder sometimes when i'm reading things about anthony whether he thinks about the fact that he's gonna have a body in the in the resurrection and the fact that christ still has a body so I don't know. He does in at the very end. He actually mentions a bodily resurrection. He wants to be buried so that his body can be resurrected. You know, I'd like to just address the question of. I mean, you know, it's not a. I guess it wasn't posed as a question, but um, you, Chad, you mentioned that scholars question how Anthony might have read uh, Plato or Plotinus or these various writers. Uh, Plotinus, right? Did you say Plotinus or is yeah, he later? Right now it'll be Plotinus, yes. Okay. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I think one thing that they often misunderstand is, of course, just how much a culture can be influenced. I don't know if they misunderstand it. I, maybe they forget it. I mean, how many people do we talk to who are so patently influenced by Nietzsche's ideas or by Sartre's ideas or Camus' ideas in our just normal interactions with people on the street who've never even heard of those guys, who've never heard the name Camus or uh, have never read anything of theirs. I mean, you know, the bottom line is, is these philosophers just had such an impact on culture and the way people thought. And I, I think you could make the same, a similar point to what Trevor was making about Buddhism. I mean, you know, Greece is right on that border of between the East and the West. And Greece is fascinating because they're, Western, but they're Eastern too. I mean, even today, you know, fundamentally, there is a different way in which the Greeks think than the way that the French think, you know, Um, and and it is influenced by kind of the Eastern world. And I think you could make the point, not of course, that Anthony is trying to be a Buddhist (laughs) by any means, but that Plato himself might have been influenced 
by some of these Indian uh, ways of thinking, yeah. and that that could have just created a certain culture that would have influenced Anthony in his own thinking. Yeah, there's evidence from Plutarch uh, that he was aware of the, they call them the gymnosophists, um, right? And I think this is in the life of Alexander, at least that's the one that I remember, um, where Alexa- like Alexander goes um, east and, and encounters um uh, yeah, Eastern philosophers. Um, and uh, I guess actually Gumno comes from being naked. Um, so that these, these naked wise men, <laughs> that he, <laughs> which are essentially yogis, we call them now, um, yeah. and, or, or gurus. Um, and, um, but yeah, so there is, I mean, there is evidence within the literature that, that there was crossover. Um, Plutarch's writing quite a bit later, um, but, uh, but Alexander was taught by uh, Aristotle. So there is, uh, there is connection there. Hmm. Um, so one thing that I wanted to bring up, okay, so we're going to, this will be a bird's eye view kind of question. And one thing that I was sort of in, excited about reading from reading a, like a text on monasticism. Um, so we have in this guy, Antony, a little bit like Tertullian. He sort of, um, doesn't like philosophy. He'll, he'll talk about the need to like remove yourself uh, from worldly wisdom. Um, Anthony is more extreme from Jerome, right? He can't read or write. Um, so what do we make of this? Like, you know, just sort of maybe let's ask a general question about the place of sort of, um, of academic theology. Um, maybe academic's not even the right word, but sort of, you know, systematic um, head critical, um, theology that's that's intellectualized faith, um, and then we have this person of of Antony um, who is a you know who's living out his faith in this very real way. Um, now you know we may agree or disagree with with how he does it, but he clearly has a kind of um, distance from the writings of um, you know he doesn't really mention Nicaea. He mentions the Arians, uh, but he's not an, he's not writing like. Athanasius even, um, who's writing his own life, or Gregory of Nyssa, who will read, or Tertullian, who we've have read, Clement, these other guys. Um, they're more in the intellectual tradition. What do we make of this balance in sort of broadly speaking, the Christian faith between intellectual theology and sort of like practiced lived prayer life? Well, I think it's been an ongoing division in the church. I mean, I don't know a balance I don't know if you pose that as a should like as a question of how can we balance it. I, to that, I don't know. I don't think we have balanced it. I think people tend. I, don't get me wrong. I think some. I mean, this is not to say that I think there are no intellectuals who have bad, who have good prayer lives or who are spiritual. That's not the case. But I just mean that it seems that we tend to fall into two camps. We tend to fall into the camp where that says. Um, intellect is good and we should devote much time to theology and study and learning and the camp that says it's bad and we should avoid it because it provides dangerous pitfalls that could destroy us. And, and it does seem that regardless of how spiritual you are, um, you will tend to fall into one of those two camps. Um, It seems to me, Uh, it doesn't seem like we've been, very effective at bringing the two together. And it seems that that has been a problem throughout the history of the church. I mean, you know, we have, this is some, some distance in the future, but I can't help but think about 
you know, a few, a few hundred years after the point we're at now when Bernard of Clairvaux and Peter Abelard are going to go go at it. Abelard being the rationalist, the intellect, and Bernard being the mystic. And it just seems to be this thing that pervades the church. And I know I'm, you know, I, I am decidedly in the pro-intellect camp, and, but I have many friends who are in the other camp. And basically we just don't talk about it or unless we want the division to arise, that seems to be the thing. And I, yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's just a problematic thing that has continued in the history of the church. It's, it's a, it's kind of a difficult division because we, a lot of people in the academic intellectual camp would like to even say that our faith should be guided by reason. And that that is a, that would be a virtue. Um, and that's something I would say. And so there's, I don't know, some, some churches and some communities have put more, I guess, stock in study and education. I mean, just off the top of my head, when I think about like the Jesuits, I think of, you know, some people who really emphasize education in a way that they give everyone a really good education. Um, Self-included. Yeah. And so, and so it's, um, it's a, I don't know. It's, it's to me, it almost just seems completely one side of my mind, but when I, I know people, yeah, as Tom said, in the other camp and I understand where they come from and I've kind of just come to think there is just a lion's den of ideas out there and that just some of us are Daniel's. And that just some of us can hack it. And I've come to fully accept that not everyone can. Like, I'm not sure if some of my friends should jump into some atheist message board on the internet, but I can. And it's partly because of like the things God's blessed me with. And I've just determined that that's something God's given me. And so to me, I would hope that maybe one day the way in which we'll somewhat reconcile such a division will just be that the those who are in the other anti anti kind of academic camp will just look at us as people who are blessed this way in the church who have this ability and I think kind of to quote the old c s Lewis line you know uh, the good philosophy needs to exist just because of the existence of bad philosophy basically is what he's saying so that's why we do philosophy as Christians so um I don't know. It seems that way to me. And that, and when I read even Anthony, like his one little refutation, when some philosophers come and ask him a question, he goes, well, what came first, the mind or the letters? And then they're like, well, surely the mind. And the letters came from the mind. He goes, well, there you go. You only need the mind. <laughs> and when I even hear that, I go, hey, that was a bit of like reasoning and philosophy. Like he did, he, as we always talk about, when someone wants to refute philosophers, they end up having to do philosophy to do it. And then he also, in general, was actually still putting an emphasis on the mind, even though he was a simple man. Like, his kind of his point was, like, I have a reason, and I can, like, reason about things of faith. And they actually talk about how he miraculously, without knowing letters specifically, was able to confront the Arians. So, I don't know. That's my rant on that. What does Anthony do with the Bible? I mean, does, does – I mean <laughs> – it's written, you know. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, so he would, um, so the, as far as we know, the monks would repeat the Psalms. They seem to know them by heart. There are other, there are other writings. Um, I don't, I, I haven't, I don't have us on the docket reading Evagrius Ponticus, um, although probably shame on me. I don't know if Ben um, knows Evagrius, but if he doesn't, he should, because um, he writes, he basically writes sort of an interior um, life of a monk um, himself, um, and he is sort of an originist. He's condemned at one point, uh, but he he is where we have a lot of knowledge about what the monks did specifically in their minds um, to fight the devils. In an odd way, Anthony's life is much more physical, um, and Evagrius is actually much more sort of psychological, uh, which, I mean, if you've read this Anthony's life, it probably feels, uh, doesn't feel exactly physical as we would, we might characterize it, but nevertheless it is. So what they, you know, so what they do with the Bible is they, what they, it's the only way that they, they, they know anything of the Bible is by what they've heard in congregation and what they've memorized and repeated and what they've heard from other, um, you know, priors, other fathers. Um, well, yeah, cause Abbas and Abbas. Yeah, because his, his motivation, <coughs> excuse me, for going out into the desert was Luke twelve thirty three. Which says, "Sell what things you have, give to the poor." That's that's the motivation. So I assumed he had to have like heard it in church. But if, as a principle, you're against reading, I mean, that would imply that you that nobody should ever know it because it was. I mean, well, I guess passed down orally from the writers, maybe. I mean, because somebody's going to have to be able to read. At yeah. Some point. Yeah, I mean, there's a little inconsistency there. Um, that's true. Yeah, but I mean, but piggybacking off that, does if he also wants to be um, alone and he wants to be a hermit, how does he go to church to hear the scriptures? Does it talk? I I couldn't remember. I it seemed to mostly focus on his like visions and whatnot. I don't remember it saying like, yeah. And then once a week you went to church. So, yeah. So as far as we can tell, uh, yeah, he doesn't really go to church very often. Um, there, we do learn later on that um, communion is brought to monks um, and then very quickly. So Anthony is, um, is this hermetic style um, her, where we get the word for hermit. Um, then there's another monk called a Chinobitic monk, uh, or Kenobitic. Um, and though that, that it comes from the word for table to recline at table who would gather at a table and they would have a priest there, um, who would sort of have church for the monks. Uh, so very quickly they start to form little groups, um, and, and then have sort of churches within their groups. Um, I say quickly, quickly meaning, you know, within um, 50 or so years of Anthony and then especially like right away in terms of like Athanasius writes this life and then Jerome starts writing about these different types of monks. So this this seems that I mean, in the grand history of Christianity, it's a very quick transition from lonely hermetic monks to um, Chenobitic communal monks. Okay. Um, one, one sort of, you know, we, we're, we're kind of maybe running a little towards the end here. Um, but one thing that I, you know, on this, uh, third or fourth read for me, one of the things that I really appreciated again was he talks about the fights with, uh, the devils, 
um, which is uh, something that always used to bother me as a child uh, and as a as a teenager even when my pa- my pastor or youth pastor would talk about the devil tempting me i I used to wonder, well, how do I know whether it's the devil or whether it's God and um, you know, even sort of scripture, Satan seems to know scripture. Um, and this just struck me on this read through that um, Anthony says in, in sort of chapter 35, paragraph 35, the visions of the holy ones is not fraught with distraction for they will not strive nor cry, nor shall anyone hear their voice. And this is a, a quote um, from Matthew 12 or and, and Isaiah maybe as well. And he says, but it comes so quietly and gently that immediately joy gladness and courage arise in the soul for the Lord is uh, for the Lord who is our joy is with them and the power of God, the father and the thoughts of the soul remain unruffled and undisturbed so that it enlightened as it is were with rays beholds by, by itself, those who appear. And so one thing that I've always been appealed to by monasticism, I've spent time at various monasteries, never in an Eastern monastery, but been to Eastern churches and have taken up some Eastern practice. Um, but is this whole idea that monasticism can quiet the mind even, and so quiet from quiet you from distraction. And one thing that grows out of Eastern monasticism is the is the Jesus prayer, um, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And one of the um, one of the abbas says that you swallow the mind into the heart uh, when you learn to pray the Jesus prayer without ceasing. Um, and this is something that I've never done very well, but I've always been intrigued by. Um, and it does have this, you know, to me, the, the beauty of the monastic life um, insofar as it is actually achieved um, is this sort of peace um, that, that, that comes. Um, that's not fraught with the, at one point, the din, um, Anthony says, the din of the, the demonic voices, um, which, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm schizophrenic, but <laughs> sometimes my mind feels like a din of voices. And so, you know, when true prayer happens um, for me, uh, you know, there's this sort of quietness that comes in my soul, and, and that's quite the reprieve. Um, so I definitely, I definitely understand some of the monastic drive myself. Um, but mostly it's just because I can't, you know, sometimes I can't drown out thoughts in my own head. Well, and, and I understand it too. And, and there are many things in the monastic life that lend themselves to me. And I know that there's, there's a monastery a couple hours South of here that I've from time to time thought about going down, uh, just as a retreat and getting away. Um, even aside from that, I, you know, my church has a little retreat house up in the hills that the pastors go to often. I just went to this last Thursday to go up there and fast and pray for the day. So, I mean, you know, that 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 has its, you know, th- that definitely has much that lends itself to me. Um, my Protestant bent undoubtedly has some difficulties. I, I don't have any problem with statements about spiritual warfare. I believe in the devil and in demons and in their impact, I get a little uncomfortable maybe or weirded out, I guess, when it talks about the devil physically assailing uh, Anthony. That seems not that I don't think the devil could. It just sounds like something from a horror movie, not, you know, it's just something I don't, I've never heard of, I guess, in present life. I don't see in the scripture. Not that I think it has to be in the scripture for it to be real, but just, it's just something that has me a little weirded out. Uh, one more thing too, Chad, and, and I don't take this to be 
So I, I don't think that I don't want to just be like attacking monasticism by any means or to be attacking the point you just made. It's literally just genuinely something that has, I, I've often wondered. Um, and, and, and that is you brought up the Jesus prayer and I may have even talked to you about this before, but obviously there develops in the church. And I don't know if it had happened by this point or earlier or later, but this practice of uh, repetitious prayers, you know, like you just said with the Jesus prayer saying it over and over again. And to me, it has always struck me that that seemed to be uh, a violation of what Jesus says when he says, when we pray, we don't pray like the, the uh, heathen do, uh, for they think they shall be heard for their many words. It just, that's how I've always kind of thought of that. That could be, I acknowledge my cultural, uh, you know, misunderstanding. I don't think the words have to mean that, but that's what has come into my mind is that from these Eastern religions, you have this repetitious practice of saying things over and over again, and that Jesus is saying in prayer, we ought not do that. That's how I've kind of taken that. I'm just wondering, have you ever given thought to that? Well, yeah, so the my best uh, response would be, in that passage, he's talking about the hypocrites using many words, speaking out loud, um, and then he it, it encourages to go into the room and play, pray quietly. Um, and I have to look it up there, but usually the word for quietness is hesychastos, which is uh, hesychastic monks is, a, is one way that these monks are described, these monks who um, are quiet. Um, and so part of what they're doing is the prayer of the heart. It is um, repetitious words, and it is many words, um, but it, it's not words that are used. Um, they're not embellished words. Uh, they're not words to make you know yourself look smart or to make yourself sound good or um, like you know maybe I could, maybe it's sort of like um, uh, incantations you know of the sort that you might hear at Delphi or something um, that that are supposed to get you into a frenzy. Um, these the words of the Jesus prayer are meant to calm you, calm your soul, calm your heart, um, and 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 thereby connect you with the divine to give you prayer. Sometimes, sometimes prayer is almost, it's, it's like it's given rather than done. Um, and so this is, so it's even less about the words, you know, the Jesus prayer is actually even less about the words themselves. Um, uh, in a sense, um, it's, it's as much about, um, just sort of entering into of prayer as a, um, as, as you know, as a sort of a state of mind. Yeah, I think there's a lot of value in that. Um, and I would imagine that would be a justification for it is not to, it's not a prideful thing. It's, it's not something in which you're showing off, but if you memorize something and you say it over and over, um, as a way of like putting yourself in a state of mind, I would see some value in that. I've heard from, uh, some Catholic friends of mine that the rosary really can do this for them. Like in the sense that they may start not really in the mood. And then by the end, they're just, they feel like they're really fully communing with God, even though they've just been saying, you know, <coughs> 30 or 40 Hail Marys in a row, they, they get to the point where they're like, Oh, you know, like I'm now thinking about this and this and different things in their own hearts. They want, to actually say to God. And so, I don't know. I've 
I would imagine it would be useful in that sense. Um, I don't, but yeah. And you know what, as we're talking about this, I, in earlier, I was talking about how it was kind of weird. I was mostly just talking about like really starving yourself to an unhealthy point and things like that, because I think for sure we all benefit from people like Anselm who, right. Was like coming up with cool arguments (laughs) like the ontological argument while just sitting thinking and praying as a monk. And so there's definitely like, uh, I don't know. There's, there's definitely another side to this that I think we all just said we, or you two just said you appreciate, which is like the quiet retreating part of monkhood. Only a philosopher (laughs) while reflecting on the goods, (laughs) while reflecting on the good things that monasticism has given us would come would say Anselm coming up with the ontological argument. Um, classic. Thank you, Trevor. That, that is awesome. Philosophers normally miss when teaching Anselm is that the uh, the proslogion um, is, is in the midst of a prayer. It is. Yeah. I, I love reading that work, actually. I feel very well, – I feel like a monk when I read it. I really get into his mindset. And I – yeah, it's only if you really read the whole thing and – dive deep into it and kind of you got to turn off the philosopher part of your brain a little bit but of course it it excites you when you when you get to the cool arguments and the puzzles but he is just saying a prayer and a lot of it starts off just super sincere and it's it's really cool it's a good read yeah but the best part about even thinking about anselm um, and maybe even Aquinas, who um, at one point was ready to trash uh, the Summa Theologica um, and never actually finished it. Uh, but in both Aquinas and Anselm, you you don't – well, well, we'll get to – so one of the great medieval questions is the uh, question of faith and reason, which is maybe one other way of even ca- classifying what I brought up earlier. Um, but there doesn't seem to be a problem uh, for for Anselm, maybe for Aquinas either. I, like I said, this is debatable, um, but uh, there doesn't seem to be a problem there. They basically, you know, for for them, it's 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 very natural for Anselm to begin a prayer and then have a very syllogistic, logical argument for the existence of God in the midst of his prayer. <laughs> Um, you know, to him, it doesn't even seem, you know, I was the one who set up that dichotomy. So, um, but, but nevertheless, you know, it is cool to read some of these people who don't even think about them as being juxtaposed. It's all just one life, um, devoted to God. You could be devoted through mind and devoted in heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Coming back really quickly to, um, your response to my question there a bit ago, Trevor, I think well said. I mean, he definitely is addressing hypocrisy and that issue of drawing attention to yourself in prayer. Um, I do think the reason why it was a question for me is because in there in the blip, he says, do not use vain repetitions like the heathen do. And so that's where I kind of wondered, is that is that repetitious praying like that? Is that similar to the way the pagans pray? The truth is, I don't know. I yeah. We're not, I mean... I wasn't back there. It's just what I kind of envisioned. And to be just for the sake of everybody listening, I mean, I've said it before. I come from a uh, typically, you know, a, a charismatic background. Uh, I've had a lot of interaction with praying with charismatics and Pentecostals. And what I see even there where you have unscripted prayer, unmemorized prayers is something that I also 
have wondered whether or not it falls into the same category because it seems to be that they that charismatics will often pray repetitiously to get worked up into kind of a frenzy, if you will. There's in my experience people repeating words, the name Jesus over and over and over again and and things like that. And there's no doubt that that kind of repetition creates frenzy. And I never thought of it in terms of a repetition to calm. Um, okay. Cause I've certainly not seen that in that, in that context. Well, well and- it's funny. You said repetition to frenzy versus the repetition to calm. Um, <laughs> given, given the kind of worship that, that to me is more worshipful, if you like, um, is more contemplative. Uh, and, you know, I know that I, so I don't mean to, and, and if I, in saying that, I'm not saying that it is the only way, uh, but it would be no surprise that the passage that I quoted from the life of Antony is one that talks about the contemplative, quiet, peaceful, uh, voice of God. Um, because when it gets too loud and when it gets to be too much, um, for me, that's sort of the opposite of um, connection to God. And, and that's, like I said, I'm, you know, I'm calling this, you know, to me, I'm not trying to say that this has to be the standard for all Christians. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so like to, to me, I'm, I'm like, oh yeah, let's get to this quiet, reflective um, kind of worship. Cause if it gets, if it gets too rowdy, I get real uncomfortable. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Which is funny. Having said <laughs> that I, you know, come from a bit of a charismatic background. I'm a, you know, very uh, not uncomfortable person in that context, actually. <laughs> All right. Well, anything else that you wanted to add from this life? I think I've, I've stated my few things. Um, well, just one more question based off of something I'd asked before, because I asked two questions really, and you addressed the one, or maybe the other one wasn't really posed as a question, but really to two of you guys, what do you make out of the physical attacks of, the demons. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, like I said, I don't want to say it couldn't happen. I believe in the devil. I think he could. That's just not, it's not consistent with certainly anything I've experienced or heard of really people experiencing. What's more is it doesn't really, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't ever remember reading about it in any of the guys we've read up to this point. That doesn't seem to be the experience of the martyr era era of the church, if you will. Well, the cynical part of me wants to say he got mugged in the middle of the night. And he blames. And he blames on the devil. Yeah, like that there are physical attacks, but it's not. And he's just kind of saying the devil did it, so to speak. Yeah, and in that way, I just think it sounds likely, too, because he's out there alone. And for someone who's come out there and Mm -hmm. beat him. And take some of his stuff makes sense to me, but then, but yeah, I mean, it's certainly, yeah, like you're saying, it's certainly possible. I mean, I just I, don't see what benefit it would like I don't, to the devil or to anybody for that to be a thing. Uh, I, I thought of it honestly as hallucinations. I mean, the dude isn't too. eating ever, and he's probably hallucinating. Well, of, and I've always thought that about the aesthetics is like man weren't these guys probably tripping after a few days i mean i imagine you're not fully doing that well in light of modern medical knowledge if you haven't been eating at all and there is a story right he's in solitary confinement basically he's not eating and they said they expected to be like nothing left of him but he comes out looking really refreshed and I think, like, yeah, I mean, that seemed, sure, that might, you know, that could have happened in the sense that he was miraculously refreshed and kept 
uh, well, but like, I just still imagine. Yeah, I don't know. I am a bit. I'm a bit. I'll just admit. Yeah, I'm a bit more cynical about it. I'm a bit more critical. But like, this. Yeah. Well, I've got two thoughts. One of them. Um, so uh, I've brought up this word a couple times now. Askesis, which is training. One, um, especially. This happens actually more in Syria. Um, a little bit, maybe slightly even further east. Um, Simon Stylitis, Simon who stood on a, a column, basically. It was sort of the entertainment um, of the Christians of the period to go and look and see how the monks were fighting the temptations, were fighting the were fighting Satan, and they were considered sort of the athletes. So we're going back to training. They were training as athletes because they were viewed as athletes and they were heroes um, like athletes. And so maybe some of the physical stuff that is being described um, is, and especially in this very early account, has this sort of stronger connection back to the the sort of the spectacle that was the Christians in uh, the Colosseum, sort of like athletes, sort of something to be watched. Uh, you know, I don't know, maybe there's some sort of connection there. The other thing that I was going to bring up is the life of the body is the secondary life. So in a way, the less fantastic to – the less sort of fantastic, the less difficult to believe for Antony or even Athanasius is that something would happen physically. Uh, the truest part about humanity is its soul and its spirit. Um, and so, you know, there's a sense in which the, the body is just, you know, physical accident. Whereas for us, you know, most of us are so conditioned by the scientific revolution, it's been inverted. We're skeptical that anything can happen outside our physicality. Um, so the physicality, um, which we see, which, and this physicality that we think that we understand with such precision because of, um, sort of scientific, uh, experimentation we think we have a perfect understanding of how it all goes but we you know but we don't and so for them it'd be just as likely that yeah sure satan can touch the body who cares you know satan attacks our mind and that's what matters i, I mean i'm not that's not perfectly answering your question uh but th that might be one way that i would try to sort of invert our way of thinking about it yeah and i think i think that's fairly put and i think it's a good yeah. a good thought i think you know, I, my bigger concern just, at least I think is my bigger concern, is why that language isn't seen in Scripture or in the first 300 years of the church. Um, why it all of a sudden kind of jumps in. And it's, for our, just so our listeners know, I mean, this is a way of thinking that will persist in a lot of ways. Like, um, we're going to see it even in the Reformation. Luther is going to have a physical confrontation with the devil in his mind. Um I, 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 when I was reading when I was reading about this, I couldn't help but think um, from the Brothers Karamazov, uh, which is one of my favorite novels, and any of our listeners who have not heard it need to read it immediately. The Brothers Karamazov. There's a character, Father Farapont, who is an who is an ascetic. He's a monk. Uh, he's a bit of a hermit too, even though he lives in a monastery. He prefers to be away from the other monks, but he sees demons everywhere, and he's always fighting demons and. When I read that, I can't tell if the author, Dostoevsky, is mocking him. He's certainly an, a character that is uh, – he's certainly an unsympathetic character. Um, he's not a character that Dostoevsky likes. But it, it's a very curious thing, and I, I'm just it, – it's like I couldn't help but think of that character, and clearly this is drawing from this tradition that is going to persist 
all the way from Anthony up until now of these physical manifestations and this physical interaction uh, between humans and demons. Yeah, the only, I mean, the only other thing I guess I could come up with uh, for the sort of physicality stuff with the demons, you know, I mean, they're, and possession um, is a physical thing. Now, it's not demons of their own stuff hurting Anthony, which is clearly what he's describing. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so when he, he talks about being lashed by the demons, like, he doesn't say there a body came in and it was demon possessed and then they lashed me. He just says the demons um, beat me. Um, so you're so I mean there, there is a there is a difference um, insofar as it's not their own physical nature, physical makeup um, in the in the possess possession accounts. Yep. Yeah. Fair so, enough. I don't think there's any. Uh, well, I, I don't know exactly what kind of resolution I'd be looking for. It's just a curiosity to me and something that seems strikes me as a weird footnote in the history of the church. Well, and I know, I mean, Job, I guess, Satan gives him some boils. Yeah, but that's, that's all done. So that physical, that's good. That's a good one. But it's, yeah. I think even then it's, there's no indication that Satan physically manifests and does those things. Right. It's just that these all happen. And it's because of this interaction between Satan and God, where God says, okay, these are allowed. Um, you know, but I, I don't, yeah. I still don't see the physical, maybe, maybe the, the temptations in the desert with Jesus, Satan. Jesus is in the desert. Satan manifests. There's no physical fighting, but it's dialogue. See, and I've even always read that as, he didn't literally produce sound vibrations in the air because for me, I always do read demons as incorporeal. Yeah. So I assumed even that was a spiritual. Me too. Yeah, me too. That's, I mean, that's, I'm just trying to think, get in their heads a little bit, but no, I see your point. Like if you read that, you could. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Was that good enough? Good enough for me. Good enough for me. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with, with Athanasius's work on the incarnation and the Eastern view of deification. Also, please check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash a history of Christian theology.